0: or you'll miss it. We've all heard that phrase used before. In fact, we may have used it as well, and we, it may have been to refer to some small town on a, on a state highway that if, if you're not careful, you're good, you drive by and you blink and you miss it. It could be that little flash as you watch the sunset, particularly at sea, which, which I love doing. You watch the sunset, and just as the sun goes below the horizon, there's a little flash. If you blink, you miss it. Or it could be in a movie. Uh, Oftentimes, movies will put these little things uh, that we've called Easter eggs, have nothing to do with Easter, but they're little things hidden in a movie, or maybe a cameo appearance of, of the producer or someone like that. And if you blink, you'll miss it. Well, today we come to a passage in the Bible that's one of those don't blink or you'll miss it. It's a passage that deals with three of the most significant events in the life of Jesus Christ his baptism his empowerment by the Holy Spirit to do ministry, and then his testing in the wilderness and his temptation by Satan. So we're going to look at these five verses uh, today that that Mark just kind of flies by. Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more. They tell in a little bit more in depth there. But Mark goes by them quickly because he wants to get to his main point, his main theme, which we saw last week is to say that Jesus is the Son of God. And each and every one of us needs to make a decision about what we're going to do with that truth that Jesus is God's son. So today here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at five verses and then I'm gonna step back and we're gonna explore a little bit of the theology behind those events, these three events, and about them. Theology that's very important for us to understand. And then we're going to ask this question. Regardless of what the rest of the, of scripture teaches us about his baptism, his empowerment, and his testing in the wilderness, what do these five simple verses have to say to you and me in 2021 as we live our life out trying to follow Jesus? Now, since Mark is a get-right-to-it gospel, we're going to get right to it, but before we do, I just want to welcome those that are listening to us on our podcast or on the internet. We thank you for listening. I know many of you during COVID, uh, there's, there's some people here today that Haven't been coming to chapel. They've been listening on the podcast, so we're thankful that those that are listening are listening that way. And those that aren't here, we look forward to seeing you sometime soon back here in Sky Valley. So, Mark chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 9. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And Luke tells us he's about 30 years old at this point and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, if any of you took the challenge that I gave you last week to read uh, straight through the Gospel of Mark, it only takes about an hour, read through it at least once to get the big picture, I bet that none of you stopped on these five verses to scratch your head and and dig into this. You're probably like, hey, let's just keep going with the story. But what we're going to do now is we're going to step back, we're going to explore these three things that he talks about that Matthew and Luke go into much detail on. And if you want to, please take out your life notes, that other half sheet of paper that you should have gotten whenever you came in. It's got a few fill-in-the-blanks there. Take your life notes, and you'll see that there's two sections there. The first says a closer look at these three events, and then we're going to have a closer look at some life lessons, some application for us. You know, one of the keys, one of the things that I I try to do whenever I I teach or, or whenever I preach is, you know, I, want, I don't want, I don't want the, the word of God just to be some history lesson, some ancient facts for you. I want to show something, what we need to do in light of what we hear here in chapel or wherever I'm speaking. And the first key event that we find here in verse 9, we see Jesus baptized by John. We see Jesus baptized by John. Now, now why does Mark include that? And why do the others, Matthew and Luke, go into such depth here? It's because it's a very significant part of Jesus identifying with you and me and with all of humanity in our sin. It's here at the beginning of his ministry. He's identifying with us. And it's part of this continuum of his identifying with humanity. He was born in Bethlehem as a full human being He identifies at the beginning of his ministry with a with a special kind of baptism which we're going to go into more detail about in a few minutes and then of course his identification is complete when on the cross the sins of the world your sins minds all of the sin of the world is laid upon him and he cries out it is finished it is paid in full Now, there are actually two types of baptism in the New Testament. The first one is John's baptism. This baptism we see here, which is what Jesus did, and the second is Christian or believer's baptism. We're gonna talk about those. John's baptism was essentially a public statement of repentance in order to be forgiven. People stepped forward. They said, I'm repenting. Now to repent in a biblical sense is very different than what we use it in, in, our, in, our, in our everyday English now because today it basically means someone thinks of repent. they mean you know, I'm sorry. I'm saying I'm sorry. But the biblical sense is, is much deeper than just merely saying I'm sorry. It's not an apology. It's a change. It's a change in behavior. It's a 180 degree turn and change so these people were going out into the wilderness and, and and John was 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 speaking and he was calling them to repentance there in the in the early verses of Mark he was doing his ministry he was baptizing people because they said hey you know what I need to change I need to turn around I need God's forgiveness and what he was doing give you some background here it was basically a, a shock to the Jewish religious leaders we don't, we don't live in this world that Jesus is walking in then. We do literally, but it was a different culture, a different, different world, the same way that you know, United States in 2021 is way different than it was in the 50s and 60s, isn't it? It's a different culture, different world. And what he was doing here, it was a shock to religious leaders, and we saw last week that, that John probably wasn't the highest on the EQ or emotional quotient uh, ladder there. He wasn't into worrying about what people thought of him or worrying about what they thought about what he said. And so the religious leaders come out and he says, you stupid snakes, why are you coming out here? He says, I know that, I, I, you know, that's not the way to start a sermon, okay? At least that's not what they taught us in seminary. He says, I know that you're descendants of Abraham. I know that your sons were circumcised on the eighth day. I know that you keep the religious holidays and ceremonies but God's not pleased with you, and you are not his children. Now, their attitude was, well, no, wait a minute. We're Jews, and of course we're God's children. Yeah, we may not be perfect. We may not be like those Moabites or those other Gentiles who, who sacrificed their children over there, but, but we're, we're God's children. We're God's chosen because we're Jews. And he said, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and be baptized. And he was saying this to Jewish folks there in Judea. And when he said this, he was essentially telling Jews who thought being Jews automatically meant that they were in, that made them right with God, you're not right with God. And the baptism he was calling them to, it was a baptism that Gentiles usually had to go through in order to become Jews. So it was a big deal. That's why the religious leaders were scratching their heads. And, but here's a modern day parallel to what John was doing there. Today in, in America and in Canada, we have, we have many what could be called cultural or nominal, nominal in name only, Christians. Folks who said, hey, I, I grew up in a Christian home or I went to church as a child or I was born in America and I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim. So, I must be a Christian. I don't live, necessarily live like one. I know that, but I'm, I'm better than most people. I'm better than most people who, who, who don't really like God. And then we come along and we say, hey, you know, it doesn't really matter what bumper sticker or if you put a fish on the back of your truck. What matters is how you live and where your heart is with the Lord. And that's what John was doing. And that's why Jesus came to him. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus understood that he needed to identify with us. So you have John's baptism. And then the other baptism in the New Testament is Christian baptism or believer's baptism. And sometimes people get it confused with John's. Our baptism as a Jesus follower is a public statement just as theirs, but it's a public statement of following Jesus. Not to be forgiven. This is very important. Not to be forgiven, but because of We are forgiven. We have been forgiven. And when you read through the New Testament, the baptism of Christians is an identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we're from many different denominational backgrounds here at at this chapel. And Christians like to argue about things like, what is the right way to baptism? Do you sprinkle Do you dunk them? Do you hose them down? Does it have to be forward? Does it have to be backwards? Is it three times, whatever? And and we take these verses and we tear them apart trying to figure it out. And the main thing, though, in John's baptism and with ours is simply a statement. Does it make you saved? No. The Jesus who died on the cross that you might be saved is not going to send you to hell on a technicality because you didn't make it to to the baptistry. There's a lot of people who, who look at these verses and, and they answer the question, what must I do to be saved? That they say, like, you have to believe in the Lord and be baptized. Well, that's like tell, me telling someone today who asks, what must I do to get right with God? Uh, well, you need to turn your life over to Him. You need to, need to uh, get discipled and you need to get involved in, in, in a good local church. Well, I'm making a statement of what the path is there, but I'm not giving you a checklist of the things that you need to do to avoid going to hell does that make sense does it make sense to you of course the ultimate proof of, of what i'm saying here is a couple things first off the thief on the cross when jesus turned to him and the, the one thief who was very contrite and, all and said hey we're bad guys if you're going to save someone save yourself but not us we deserve we deserve to die remember what jesus said to him today you will be with me in paradise And even more important, in the book of Acts, uh, there's a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He was a guy, military guy who was in in charge of a hundred other men. He was the first Gentile that we see in the New Testament who became a genuine Jesus follower. And Peter and the others up to this point, they had thought that becoming a Christian was basically kind of a two-step process. First, you had to become a Jew, and then you became a Christian. So you have this Gentile who... Who they see, they see the evidence of of, of faith in his life. They see the Holy Spirit is in his life. They see the manifestation of the Spirit there. And they baptize him because of what has happened in his heart. And this all led to some consternation amongst the church in Jerusalem. And they had to have a council and decide. and And basically they came down and said, okay, no, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now baptism is a sign of what God has already done. And if you're a Jesus follower and you've never been baptized, you should. Why? Because he says to. Uh, but Jesus says to. It's a, it's a public statement uh, that we're called to do in the Great Commission, the great assignment that God gave to his followers, that Jesus gave to his followers as he was departing this world to go up into heaven. He told us to go into all the world. He said, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to follow all the things that I've been teaching you all along. And that's basically ministry ministry in a nutshell. And obedience in a nutshell is the same thing Jesus did to be baptized. But it's a different kind of baptism for for the believer. The big deal of this was that though he was sinless, he had no sin. He had no reason that he needed to ask for forgiveness of God. He did it to identify with us, with the people like you and me who are sinful, and that continues all the way through. So that's the baptism of John or by John. Now, theologically, the second important event that we find here in this passage that, again, Matthew and Luke dig into in more detail is this. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit in verses 10 and 11. And as he comes up out of the water, heaven is torn apart, as it were, and the Spirit of God comes down on him like a dove. And so the Father then says, a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, I am well pleased with him. I'm well pleased with you. So what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal, as we pointed out before, is that Jesus set aside his divinity. And If you didn't get last week's uh, first message in Mark, you can pick it up on, off of our website or on podcasts, all the main, main podcast uh, platforms. But Jesus did not come with all of his divinity. It tells us in Philippians 2 that he, he emptied himself of that, and he came as a man, and he lived life as a man. He wasn't like, you remember Clark Kent, the old black and white Clark Kent, I forget the guy that played him, but, um, but I can remember this guy, you know, dark hair like my daddy had and, and, and he looked different with his glasses off or something. But Clark Kent was Superman, but he, he was pretending to be a human. That's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't pretending to be a human. He came fully human. And he set his divinity aside. He was fully God. He put his divinity aside. He was born. And for that period of time, he lived as a human being the same way that you and I live, except for the sin nature. He didn't have the sin nature. And that's what, why this testing and all this stuff makes such a big difference, why the virgin birth makes a big difference. Unlike Adam, he's not born with the sin nature, but he's living as a human being like you and me. And so all that he did, all of his miracles. At the beginning of his ministry, and each gospel makes it quite clear that he didn't do anything until he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then he calls out and he does, and, and he, he goes out and he does what the Father has called him to do. And it's why, as we, I think, told, think I told you about this last week, but it bears repeating, it's why when, when the Pharisees came to him, And they accused him of doing the work of Satan. They attributed his miracles to the work of Satan. He said, not that you're blaspheming the Son of God. He said, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because the power behind the miracles was the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the Old Testament, there were people like some of the prophets and folks that that did the same miracles that Jesus did. A short list would include Elijah, Elisha, his protege, and, and Moses. They multiplied food, they, they changed the weather, they, they raised the dead. All of them, how? Empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to do what God was calling them to do. And what declared Jesus as the Son of God, you know, his miracles showed God's approval, but what declared him to be the Son of God was his resurrection from the dead. Now, let me give you a few verses to highlight this, and then I want to show you why it's so significant to us. You know, these are cited. I've got the citations in your life notes. We'll put the, the, the actual verse up on the screen. It tells us in Mark 1.12, we saw this already. The Spirit sent him out into the desert. In Luke 4.14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And in Luke 5.17, he says, And the power of the Lord was present. Why? For him to heal the sick. The power of the Lord was there so he could heal the sick. Now, I want to look a little bit closer at Mark chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which shows so clearly the humanity of Jesus living without sin, empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in ho- his hometown of Nazareth, and we're going to dig into this in great detail in a, in a few weeks later when we get to Mark chapter 6, but right now, I want to see this and see where they're going. You know, the folks are there, and they're asking, well, you know, who's this? Is it, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, we know him. He's Joseph's son. Now, you got to remember, he didn't start his public ministry till he was 30 years old. In a culture where adulthood was considered much sooner than the long-delayed adolescence that we have here in America. And in verse 4 of Mark chapter 6, Jesus said to them, "...only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor." And it says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them it doesn't say he didn't do it doesn't say he didn't want to do it says what he could not do well how can that be well it's very easy he was coming he was living as a man or just like you and i are human being he was fully, he was full on human. He, was set, he had set aside his divinity. He was empowered by the Spirit. But when there's a lack of faith, as there was in these people there in Nazareth, then the Spirit of God wasn't working powerfully. And he was not able to do it. And how the mechanism was, I'll be honest, I really don't understand all this about, about this. I don't understand it. But it was the faith that caused the Spirit, moved the Spirit to do the miracles. And so it says it here, he's he's only able to to lay his hands on a few sick people. And then notice verse 6. And he was amazed. He was amazed at their lack of faith. It doesn't say that he rebuked them for their lack of faith. It says he was amazed. Now why is that such a powerful truth? Well, because the same Spirit... The guided and empowered Jesus Christ is the same spirit that indwells every believer in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible makes such a big deal about it. On your life notes, I've got a reference there for John 16:7. Circle that and, and then come back to it later this week. You know. But there Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, he's saying this the the night before he's betrayed, right before he goes to Gethsemane. He's basically saying, unless I go away, the counselor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when the Spirit comes in in, in power on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that was a fulfillment of this promise that Jesus had given now, I need to explain a couple things about what it means to be completely empowered by the Holy Spirit, because there's some incorrect thinking out there. First of all, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. We've said that once or twice, haven't we? We said it last week, We said it this week. It's, it's, you know, there's a reason you repeat stuff when you're teaching, right? Because it's important. So when, so when Jesus had an inner prompting or a nudge from the Holy Spirit, he knew it was a nudge from the Holy Spirit. You and I have a sin nature. And it's like static on the line. Remember those old phone lines that we used to have before uh, mobile cellular phones? Remember when there was a storm or a rain or something and you try to talk to somebody and, there's, and they're static on the line? So when God is at, at work in your heart and mind, we often don't know if it's last night's pizza or if it's really God that's talking. Which is why the scriptures tell us that we should be always lining up these inner promptings with scripture and with the word of God because he will never contradict himself. So there's the difference. He had no sin nature, but we've got static on the line. But there's something else that we need to understand about the work of the spirit. Many of us have this assumption that if if we were totally filled with God's spirit, I mean just totally filled, no static, we're ready to go, that we'll have the power to do anything and everything that we want to do. We just pray it, and bingo, it happens. And there's actually guys and gals on TV that teach that. There would never be a time where we couldn't do something, that we were confused, that we wouldn't just be so filled with joy. There would never be a time where we'd be so distraught, where we would grovel, and we'd, we'd look up to heaven, and we'd cry out to God, What's going on? Why have you forsaken me? Is there any way for me not to go through this? Which is exactly how Jesus responded. You see, the problem is we often think of the Holy Spirit as some, as some power source that we just have to, have to figure out how to plug into. And once we figure out how to plug into that power, everything's perfectly happy and good, like, like we won the lottery or something. People play the lottery. They think, oh, if I win the lottery, everything is going to be happy and good. Well, read the stories of people that actually win the lottery and what, what happens with them. This isn't what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, get this, the Holy Spirit guides us and empowers us to do what God wants us to do, not what we want to do. I think it's one of the reasons why Paul, again, in Philippians says, have the mind of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't naturally have the mind of Christ. I have to to be dedicated to it, work at it, to have the mind of Christ. Christ. The Holy Spirit, just as with Jesus, guides. The Holy Spirit is what inwardly, through the scriptures, with wise counsel, inner promptings, helps us to understand what the Father wants us to do and then empowers us to do that which and only which the Lord wants done. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The third thing we see here. If you look back at Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, it says that Jesus was tested by Satan. It says that once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Well, the reason that this is the first thing the Holy Spirit does is because of what Jesus' assignment was. Jesus came to pass the test that Adam failed. When Adam sinned, sin was passed on to all of Adam's descendants. And every single one of us is a descendant of Adam. And we're born with a sin nature. We don't have to go looking for it. We're born with it. How many of you had to teach your kids to be self-centered? If you don't remember, just go spend some time with a two-year-old. You know, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be self-centered. No kid ever had to be taught how to sneak a cookie out of the cookie jar. And some adults don't have to be taught either. Nobody ever had to teach us how to lie or stretch the truth. We find ourselves in a situation which is is uncomfortable and the consequences are great and boom. We just do it. It comes naturally to us because of our sin nature. And so his purpose was to come and pass the test that Adam failed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, or the second man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus passed the test that Adam failed. Therefore, and because of this, he could die for our sins because he was perfect, and he had no sin. He had no consequences of sin on on him. He's the only one that could step forward and take your penalty and my penalty for our sin because he didn't have the same penalty on him. I want you to see a couple verses that combine this humanity and temptation thing, first in Hebrews chapter 2. It says there, it says, For this reason, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. How? Fully human. Every way he had to be made like us. Why? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement. He might pay for the sins of the people. To be fully human means he's got to go through the same trials, the same tests, the same temptations as we do. And in Hebrews chapter 4, speaking of Jesus again, the writer writes this For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands, is what the writer's saying. But we have one who has been tempted. How? In every way, just as we are, yet. And that's a very important phrase coming up here. Yet, he did not sin. He had no sin. And that's why the Spirit compelled him to go there to be tempted and tested. Now, what about his temptations? What about these tests? Uh, again, Matthew and Luke go into in very much detail, and we're just going to go over them quickly here. You know, but he faced the same things. He faced, if you think about these, the way I've got I mean, if he faces the same things that, that we face And the first temptation is this, who will we trust in a crisis? Who will we trust in a crisis? Jesus went out there, and we're told that he was called to fast for 40 days. And if you know anything about fasting, or if you ever fasted, you know that at the beginning you're hungry, and then then there comes a point in fasting that you lose your hunger. And when you start to get hungry again, it basically means that your body is, is shutting down. And at that point, the enemy shows up. The adversary, Satan, the tempter shows up and says, Hey, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, No, I'm going to live by the word of God. That's what we live by. And he's basically saying that even though he's got a crisis going on there, even though God's way does not seem to be working out very well at that time for him, he says, I'm still going to trust the Father. I'm going to lean On his word, not on my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge him here. Now, we all face that, don't we? We've all tried God's way and found the points that it's not really working. And that's when we oftentimes get a little bit scared. And then we sometimes say, Well, God, you know, okay, I must have messed something up, but let me me just take it from here and do it my way. And we know that it's not right, but we figure that that we can't see the way out of the crisis, so we try to work it out and make it work. manipulate it to work the second temptation he faced was this what will we do to speed up the process don't you hate it when God's got you in a holding pattern you're waiting you know kind of what's up you you've you've heard God speak to you you know what's and it's like it's not happening and the enemy took Jesus to the highest point of the temple and said you know what rather than having to do all this traveling all over the place and, and teaching and preaching so that people understand you're the son of God, just, just go up the top of the temple and, and jump. And God's angels are going to protect. I mean, he quoted scripture to him. Satan quoted scripture, and said, hey, you know, he'll protect you. And you just do that. And, it'll, and, and then they'll say, hey, yeah, he's the son of God. Wow, he's the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to stick to the father's timetable. And then the last, the third temptation here is what will we do To avoid pain. And I think oftentimes this is the the hardest one, because I don't know about you, but I don't like living in pain, whether it be be physical pain, uh, emotional pain, spiritual pain. But what will we do to avoid pain? Satan's called the God of this world. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they turned over the title deed of earth to him. But Jesus redeems it back when he cries out on the cross, Paid in full, it's finished. But Satan said to Jesus, you know what, I own all this. All these kingdoms are mine. And he takes him up on the mountaintop and says, you know what, you don't have to go through all that stuff that's, that you're facing up ahead. Just bow down to, here, to me right here and I will give it to you without you having to go through the pain. Listen to me. There is always, there is always a godless shortcut to where God's trying to lead us. There's always a godless shortcut to where God is trying to lead us. And in the pain points of life, there's often a way to get out of that pain, but it's not the way that God wants us to go. And Jesus said no. In great physical weakness and under great stress, he faced pretty much the temptations that we all face. So there you have it, the, the theology behind these statements of why Mark, even, even though he wants to get on with the story, why he mentions it and why Matthew and Luke go into so much more detail about it. But at the same time, if we hadn't, if we hadn't spent this time that we've taken a day to dig into these things and explain them, there's some incredible, powerful insight and wisdom about our spiritual life today. And so that's why in your life notes, we're going to go to this next section, section which simply says, A Closer Look, Three Life Lessons. Some t- things we can get from these, these five little verses in Mark. And the first thing we need to understand is it's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to sin. The mere fact that we're tempted doesn't mean that we've sinned. It's a sin when we act on that, when we, when we succumb to the temptation. We have this assumption, just as I talked about with the Holy Spirit, that that and when everything's honky dory, when when the Spirit's in total control, we have this assumption that if we're really right with God in the center of his will, then everything will be smooth sailing. Everything's gonna just be, you know, glassy sea, no no problems, no storms, no tribulation, no winds, anything like that. But that's not what it says. Think about this passage. He gets baptized in obedience to the Father. The Father says, I love you, I'm, I'm pleased with you. The Spirit fully empowers him, and at once, he finds himself where? Out in the desert, being tempted. And here's a kind of a picture of what's going on here. He, he, you know, he's following God's will. Uh, the Spirit came to him, and you know, he ends up in a place where he probably really would rather not have been, been led to go. And what happens, you know, you know anybody ever been there? Are you feeling me here? Do you understand what I'm talking about here? What Jesus went through? We go through the same thing. And what happens is, if we don't understand this, what do we do? We usually say, where in the world is God? I thought he was going to be with me. You know, what's, what's going on here? And we find ourselves ready to turn and run, or we find ourselves ready to take things into our own hands, and, because we think God has let us down. And God is doing exactly what he's always done throughout history, and what he was doing with Jesus here. Sometimes trials and testings and suffering are necessary. They reveal what we're made of. They prepare us for the future. They prepare us for things that we're going to be called to do, and it's the only place that we learn what real obedience is. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He's talking about Jesus here. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. How? From what he suffered. You know, we read that and scratch our heads and say, well, how does that work? Well, Well, think about it. How do you learn obedience in what you suffer? Well, I'm not learning anything about obedience when you tell me to do something that I already want to do, am I? But when you tell me to do something that I don't want to do and I act on it in obedience, that's Real obedience. That's a completely different story. And make sure you fill this out in your life notes. Obedience takes us where we need to be, not always where we want to be. Obedience takes us where we need to be, not where we want to be. Obedience will take you where God wants you. And sometimes that's green pastures, that's the smooth seas, it's a beautiful place. And other times it's through a valley or it's through a desert. Or it's through a storm. In the 23rd Psalm in the Old King James, it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. And we oftentimes, so many times, we take that one little verse and we say, Oh, isn't that nice? You know, okay, when I'm dying, God's going to be there with me. But that's not what the Psalm is talking about, that's not what he means. Remember, this is, he's talking about a shepherd. The whole thing, the whole thing behind the, it starts with what? The Lord is my shepherd. And again, since we don't understand the cultural context, let me help you out here. Back then, shepherds would be leading their sheep. And in the summertime, the summer would burn off the grass in the lowlands. And as the sheep would graze, the shepherd would have to lead them higher and higher because sheep are, not the smartest animals in the world, and the shepherd would have to lead them and coax them and, and get them to go up higher to the higher elevations. If you've been here in Sky Valley during the summer, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Things get brown. The grass gets burned off. It may be there now, but it's not there, it's not there then. And so the shepherd, you know, it's talking about God being the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And, and then he says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. You remember that word, makes me? Do you have to make me do something that I want to do? No. You have to make me some, do something that I'm, I'm trying to avoid that I, that I don't want to do. Then he goes on, he says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness or the, or the right path for His name's sake. That's when he then says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And what that passage is saying is that, that he leads me where I don't want to go. He's speaking of leading the sheep up through the valley, up to the plateau, up to the green, greener places where the grass has not been burned off. And going through that valley can be kind of scary because there's predators there. And sheep may be dumb, but they understand they don't want to be around the wolves and, and the, other, the other predators, the lions and such like that. The psalmist was reminding us But the Lord is with you even when you go through the scary valley. And so in this passage is the idea that obedience will take you where you need to go. And sometimes it'll be green pastures. And sometimes it may be a desert or a storm. But remember, he's with you. We need to always remember that when we find ourselves in that desert that, that God laid on us, that we had nothing to do with or that he clearly called us into, that he's with us. Another example is found is in Exodus chapter 14. For centuries, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. And a guy named Moses shows up and he delivers them with God's power through through a series of miracles and plagues. And and now they're free and and they're rich because at the time, God said, hey, I want you to plunder the Egyptians, ask them for stuff, and they're just gonna give them. The Egyptians want to get rid of them because of the plagues. Here, take it. Take all this wealth and go. And so they're free and they're also rich and God leads them. He's leading them by a cloud and a, and a pillar of fire. And so God leads them essentially, though, into a trap. Because that's what it looks like to them. He led them into a box canyon. They had the Red Sea in front of them. They had mountains on the side. And now they've got Egyptians tracking them down, coming after him, Pharaoh, you know, had a, had, a, had a change of heart again. And he's, and he's trying to come, and he's trying to get his workforce back. And, and they're scared to death. And Exodus 14 says, as they looked up, And they saw the Egyptian army tracking them down, that they were terrified. And so they cried out to the Lord, and they cried out to Moses and said, weren't there graves in Egypt? Why would you lead us out here to, to to our graves? Leave us alone. We want to serve the Egyptians. We'd rather go back to Egypt than to die here in the desert. The truth is, they had no idea what God was up to. God was setting up the stage to part the Red Sea, to take them across, and whenever things were right, to have the sea collapse back on the Egyptian army and wipe them out so they wouldn't have to worry about the Egyptian army again. But we usually don't see through the front windshield, do we? We only see things in the rearview mirror. Seeing through the windshield is kinda of, kinda of hard sometimes because God doesn't reveal us to us, you know, two or three or four miles up the road. It may be confusing. But obedience is always the right thing, even when we're wondering, where is God? Why have you brought us out here to die? How could you do this? This is wilderness. This is not what I expected. Stand strong, do the right thing, because the center of God's will may sometimes be the desert. And that leads to the last thing I want you to see here. It's a parallel to what we've just seen And that is that a a blessed life is not necessarily an easy life. You see, God is more concerned about our eternity than he is our present. He's more concerned about our holiness than he is our happiness. He's more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. And the truth of the matter is that you not only can be in the center of God's will, you can be incredibly blessed as you're wondering, what's up with this? Because the story is not over until we're in the presence of the Lord. Show you this. I want to take a look at a woman who I think we're all familiar with. Her name is Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, this angel appears to her. Thereabouts but let's get real about let's look at what what was going on with Mary. The angel comes to her and greeted her and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now what Wouldn't you like that? Who here wouldn't want to be favored by the Lord? We want God's favorites. Who wouldn't want to know that God is with them? But let's see what that meant for Mary. Let's let's look at it. Let's really look at it here. Some things that maybe you haven't thought about before. Now, no offense, ladies, but it kind of probably meant waddling to Bethlehem. It meant waddling to Bethlehem. You know, we have these, these pictures of Joseph leave, leaving the donkey and Mary sitting on the donkey going to Bethlehem. It's about a four-day journey, and you've got to go uphill up through Jerusalem to back down to Bethlehem, which is about eight miles south of Jerusalem. She probably didn't ride on a donkey because if she'd ridden on a donkey, Jesus probably would have come before she got to Bethlehem, okay? She's riding on the donkey there on those, on those hills. Have you ever considered what, what what may have been going through Mary's head during that time? Have you ever had, have you ever had a moment when you said, "Why now, Lord? I believe Mary did. Why didn't you do this three years from now, or when I'm a bit stronger financially or emotionally or whatever? Or Lord, why is this happening now?" If this is the Son of God and I'm so blessed, so favored, why did you not have this special census thing so that we have to go down to Bethlehem? Why, it only comes once in a lifetime. Why didn't you have it at some other time than this? I mean, this is the worst possible time for me to have to make a trip when I'm so pregnant heading down on this, on this journey. And so she and Joseph get to Bethlehem. And... It's full of people. Why? Because of the census. And the hotels are all booked up. There's no Airbnbs or any other stuff. And, and there's no room anywhere for them. And so she gives birth to her firstborn in a stinking stable and has to place him in a manger, a feeding trough. They were poor. They were below the poverty line, if you will. In the Bible, the firstborn son belongs to God, we're told, because of the Passover. Remember the Passover in Egypt? God uh, passed over the house, and, 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 he, and he spared the firstborn son of all the Jews. But then after that, he told them that every firstborn son that was born, they needed to make an offering. They needed to make a sacrifice to redeem that firstborn. And it was set up there. But there was a special, uh, a lesser offering made for poor people. And so when Mary and Joseph came to give that offering... It was, this, it was a small offering. It tells us they, they were poor. And then Mary, highly favored, God with her, she had to flee. Sometimes we forget about this. She and Joseph had to flee and take the child, where? To Egypt. Why? Because Herod was coming after him to kill him. And he had the murder of the innocents there in Bethlehem. And the Lord tells him to, to, to go and go to Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, there was no Red Cross There was no NGO there to make sure they had any kind of covering, a tent or something like that. They they couldn't FaceTime their family. They couldn't call them on a Zoom call. There were no ATMs, no bank accounts. They, They didn't have a credit card. Now, think about this. Think about what she's going through. She who is highly favored and the Lord is with her. Think about what she's going through with a small child. That's what highly favored and the Lord is with you means. And then we don't really talk about it, and the Scripture's kind of silent about it, but I'm sure there were the scorn and the rumors. you know. I like how when G- Luke is giving the genealogy of Jesus, when he comes to Jesus, he says, and Jesus supposedly, or thought to be, the son of Joseph. And what he's saying here is, is everybody thought they were messing around in a culture where you didn't, you didn't do that. And I guarantee you, very few people would have bought the whole virgin birth, Holy Spirit thing. You know, I mean, would you, if someone got pregnant on your block, and, and, and you've so it was the Holy Spirit. That's, that's how it happened. Her entire life was lived in a culture where this was completely unacceptable, where she was the subject of rumors. And have you ever had someone say something that is untrue about you? Have you ever had someone just pass a word or repeat something that was absolutely untrue? Have you, have you ever asked God, well, God, why are you letting this happen? Why is this happening to me? Because you're highly favored, and I'm with you. Next, we see Joseph around up until about age 12. And then after that, we don't know when, but by the time Jesus starts his his public ministry at age 30, Joseph is dead. He's not there anymore. And then the last, Mary has to watch her son be executed on a Roman cross. You know, we have different ideas about what it means to be favored, don't we? Ideas of what it means for the Lord to be with us. And when they're of our own making, rather than as found in Scripture, the enemy has us right where he wants us. Because we're ripe to question and to doubt God. To doubt God's goodness. To doubt that God really is with us and that God really cares for us. We end up judging the goodness of God by, by today's ideas of success and failure. When we should be judging it by the cross. We judge whether it's, whether it's worth it or not by today's heartaches, not by eternity. Paul, in the book of Acts, he planted many churches. And in Acts chapter 14, it talks about him preaching the good news about Jesus in city after city. And it says that he returned to some of those cities, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. Now, what, is, what does Paul say to strengthen them and encourage them? Does he say, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? No. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. If you find yourself in a desert, a storm, or some other place of hardship, don't be surprised. It's part of living in this fallen world. Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to sin. And sometimes the center of God's will for you may be in the desert, in the storm, or in the lion's den. A blessed life is not necessarily an easy life, but stand firm and you'll be glad that you did. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!